0: hello everybody welcome to another episode of Chet venture podcast and today we have a our first guest <laughs> Hi. very very uh, special guest very special guest <laughs> my uh my dad Nick Collins. <laughs> say hello dad
1: Hi. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, i
0: think we yeah we touched upon the uh, on uh on uh, my dad's book uh in the not the last podcast or two podcasts ago yeah i
1: think
2: and... two podcasts ago and it's been the inspiration of yeah. another one so now we have the yeah. main author the main inspiration on
0: exactly and it's a an all historical book and I think uh, my dad, uh, he uh, studied history at Cambridge, Cambridge Magdalen College. But he owes most of his historical knowledge, I think, to me, uh, because of all the all questions I asked, like, uh, what was it like living with the dinosaurs back in the olden, olden, de- olden, the olden days and all that kind of stuff? I think uh, I, I, uh, I encourage your, your historical
2: intellect a little bit there. Or just, or just revive those memories, those observations, apparently, <laughs> according to your <laughs> uh,
0: But otherwise, I then also spent um, 50 years as a career in um, uh, maritime trade as well, in uh, as a shipbroker. Well, do um, you but who's counting? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and... Um,
2: we, uh, I think uh, yeah. did, well, a couple of things. Did, did we mention? Did you mention your dad's name? What did you introduce, Nick Collins? Yeah, I said. I okay, said okay, Colin, okay Cool, because I just saw you. <laughs> um, yeah, and and the most interesting. Well, one one of the interesting things is is this book you've written. Uh, and I just, I wondered if you wanted to introduce the concept of the book, and then we'll get into kind of just uh, like just just yeah, chatting well, about book, what's the, yeah. The
3: book called. Um, how maritime trade in the Indian subcontinent shaped the world, Mm. ice age to mid 8th century. Um, And initially it wasn't going to be anything about the Indian subcontinent. It was just because I've been in uh, a career in shipping for nearly 40 years. Um, uh, And I got a degree in history and I thought, what the hell am I going to do when I've I've retired? And I thought, "Um, there's no book on the history of maritime trade. There are books about certain sections of it, um, you know, the Dutch in the mm. 17th century, the British in the 17th century, Baltic trade in medieval times, but nothing pulling the whole thing together, and nothing at all really about ancient, the ancient world. So,
1: wow.
3: so I thought um, I'll I'll write it, and um, so I started, <laughs> um, so I, I started researching, yeah, and 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 trying to get it back as far back as possible, um, and back before the the flood, um, which, you know, for biblical scholars, uh, uh, is actually a worldwide phenomenon, dated Mm. now to about 5,600 BC, um, before the flood, into the Ice Age, and when men in the Indian Ocean were travelling around by ship from East Africa and the Persian Gulf, as far as... Uh, Southeast Asia, and then up to Japan and from Japan across to uh, the Americas. Um, it's wow. a breathtakingly worldwide um, mm. trade, <clears throat> in, in, con- constrained by the fact that there was ice um, covering most of Northern Europe, Northern uh, America, um, and a lot of Japan and China. This is... This yeah, we touched on
0: this up on the on the last podcast, didn't we? Um, stories about uh, we, the flood.
2: We did, and it's it's been a, a remarkably organic experience because we started uh, just brainstorming around um, things that we'd find interesting, and I, I found out about bananas and the tr- and the ori- origin of bananas and domestication and 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 mm. the trade amongst them, and that led to us talking about. Um, Austronesian peoples and then civilizations around that and then it's, it's kind of built up over time and I think having yeah as you say it's a phenomenally worldwide trade and I think we're going to get some amazing new perspectives in this podcast. So before we get into that though I'm really curious about um, you and, and and your shipping career because I know that you've been to a lot of countries. Um, or- yeah I, I worked... <clears throat> In the city in London, um,
3: and then um, after about three years, I was sent out uh, to Japan. From Japan, I I did business um, in um, Korea, uh oh, with Europe and America mainly, but but mm. uh, with with uh, Korea and Hong Kong. Actually, there was almost nothing going on in China at the time. Strangely, and now they're now they're worldwide. Yeah, but I. I spent three and a half years there. And then I came back to London again. Mm. Uh, and and then I got sent out again to run our Singapore office. And I was wow. there for three and a half years. And then I came back to uh, UK again, um, worked on uh, various projects. Um, and one of which was setting up a, an office in Dubai. Mm. And then the guy that we'd appointed um, there after... Three years or so, um, gave me a call and said, um, "Come and help me run it because there's too many things going on and I can't do it <laughs> myself." So I went there as COO, and um, and I spent um, six years in Dubai. Um, Amazing. Just in, in general, that's where we uh, met in, up. The first in, time. in that
0: in that company, you can you can you have the opportunity to travel around almost every year, anywhere. I remember you always you always uh, traveling. Out uh, to various different countries, and then um, mm. for a few days coming back, and I was always demanding that you get a gift uh, from uh, from uh, each country that you visited, and being very disappointed if I wasn't if it wasn't a, a cool <laughs> gift or something like that. So I mean, there's always there's always a lot of travel that you know that comes with uh, shipping and trade. Yes,
3: and, well, and yeah. of
0: course, Singapore and Dubai, unlike Japan,
3: <coughs> were bases for regional bases to do business in southeast asia and in the uh, and in the gulf and and india um, and for london london is still really the center of, of shipping although it is being wow. dist- so london uh, yeah we're send pe- sending people worldwide really so yeah i've been i've visited a lot of places
2: that's really cool so what was, it, what was- when you uh, worked in, I think Japan and Korea and in like kind of East Asia for the first time, was that your first time in East Asia? And uh, what yeah. were your first impressions? And how's um, it changed since back then? Yeah.
3: Well, I went to see Mike in Tokyo in 2017, wasn't it, Michael? Um, or
1: 2018,
3: 2017, I think. Mm-hmm. And and you know what? Um, although Southeast Asia is changed a lot Mm. Tokyo really hadn't changed very much at all that's Um, quite
2: interesting yeah
3: it's um, the population hasn't really uh, increased like most other places
0: in the world Um, it's going down actually isn't it at the moment
3: it is yeah Um, so um, I could find my way around Uh, everything was exactly the same there's a few new buildings but but essentially Mm. bars had changed their names or owners but essentially everything was pretty much the same it wasn't any more yeah. crowded you know london in that in those years since the since uh, i was in tokyo to um 1978 to 81 now the difference between then and now in london is enormous yeah. much more crowded um you can't park i mean it's
0: just a- there's decent food well, there's decent food. Right? <laughs> yeah, no. Is there? That's, that's questionable, I'd say. So. But,
3: but essentially, um, it's the same volume of traffic, the same numbers of people in Tokyo as it was. It was really
2: wow. that was, that was the most stunning thing I found. That's, that's super interesting. I mean, I, I did notice that also in Tokyo. I don't know how you feel about it, Mike, but a lot of the stuff feels like it's from the 90s. It's, I mean, which made me think mm. in the 90s, it must have been space age to go to Tokyo. Because it's still well, quite modern. I was there in
3: uh, in the late 70s. Yes, it was. Um, and I mean, one of the first things I did was got myself the, you know, a, a super high fi system <laughs> that you couldn't possibly get in, in the UK. Um,
2: and, um, yeah, it was fun. It was definitely fun. Is it fun? What, what was your kind of first, um, I don't know, Just just feelings of, of being in such a distant place at that time. Did it, did it feel, did it feel more distant back then than it, than it does now? Did it feel more kind of, of an ad, far away adventure than it Cause right now it's still quite a far away adventure. Um, oh, it was an adventure. It was
3: fun. I, I like Japan. I, I like living there. I think the Japanese are um, uh, very different from, from us. In fact, very different from most, most nationalities. Mm. But the culture was interesting, deep, interesting, fun. The mm. uh, nightlife was fantastic, and um, <laughs> still is, or was in 2017
0: when I saw my. <laughs> 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 uh, we were. I took my I took my dad to a shop bar in Rapongi. I remember.
2: Oh, I th- maybe it was the same one. I, I, yeah, I remember you took. I think to we the went there as well, probably. Yeah. In Rapongi, yeah. uh, Rapongi was yeah. a lot of fun. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> okay, cool. And was there any like uh well I'm I'm always curious about food. I think you know it's always interesting to hear. What what was your impression of um well not your impression, what's your favorite Japanese food? Because you've eaten a lot of it, I, I assume, by now.
3: Yes. Um uh, that's a very difficult one to ask to answer because because it is so varied, you know, you, you automatically think of sushi and sashimi, but mm. you know, there's there's so much um um what i don't know i i I like it all i well there's a well don't you i don't like umeboshi (laughs) that's about it
2: everything else what about natto natto and i love natto yeah it's great okay so 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 umeboshi for everyone listening is i believe uh is it a plum and um it's pickled and pickle. it's pickled. Yeah, like a green plum is pickled. Very, very sharp, but you, sour. But you know, you can salty. get
0: like a really sour ones. So you can get salty ones, but you can get sweet ones as well. And I like this. I love the sweet ones. I can eat those by myself, by themselves.
1: <laughs> I can eat
0: like five at a time on their own. Okay. Well,
3: I,
1: yeah. I, I mean,
3: I it, but I'd rather
2: not. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's cool. Yeah, the, the weirdest Japanese food. I well, I, it's not so much a Japanese food as maybe it is. Uh, it's also a food I think in South Korea, but it's, it's sea squirt. I'm not sure if you ever had that sea um, squid, sea squirt. Oh. oh, is that the same as sea slug? Uh, I'm not sure. Like if it's sea this. cucumber? No, it's, it's it's not even a cucumber. I think this is worth googling if, if and showing uh, on the screen, Mike. If you if you've got it on your phone. Um, it's kind of like a very old, ancient uh, sea creature. It's basically just a mass of cells with an intestine inside, and you eat the intestines. That's the part that you eat. You, know, and you eat it raw, right? You eat it raw with, it, with a bit of soy sauce helps, but it's the most foul thing. It, it looks it looks really bad, like, uh, like well, an I'm orange a, slime. A oh. Eating anything, and, I, and
3: I was offered this once, and I did eat it, and I had to drink he? an awful, awful lot of so, alcohol yeah.
2: to take the taste away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's about, that sounds about right. It was like putrefied vomit. That's just, just terrible.
0: <laughs> <clears throat> There's yeah, a, a lot of odd terrible. things as well. There's like odori, odori ebi, which is like, which is um, uh shrimp, which is still alive. Um, and you eat it it's yeah. still alive as well. That, yeah. Or <laughs> even this. That
2: was an experience. <laughs> have you had that? Yeah, how's that? How uh, does that? Uh, where where well, very, did you have very, it? And very fresh. Uh, but <laughs> you know, you could, as you
3: as you put your teeth through it, you can you can feel the uh, because it's still alive. It's just had its head ripped off, and and uh, it's mm-hmm. it's it's still.
2: Well, they're
3: still alive, basically. But, you know.
2: <laughs> yeah. so, Fine. You can get your head around it. Well. What's, yeah, exactly. That's what I'm trying to get my head around. Uh, in fact, because I know it's, it's a thing in, in certainly East Asia, I think all around Southeast as well, to eat animals whilst they're alive. It's not a common thing, but it, it is a thing even in like Korea to eat a live octopus and um, Japan, living shrimp. What, what's What's the. What's the buzz around that? What what do you think is the? I think it's expressionist,
3: but I mean, I
0: think it's also fashion and a bit silly, really. But um, <laughs> um... having you had, having you had a, a strange experience. I don't know. If, is it something that I heard from you, or was this something I watched on TV or something like uh, an experience in China, um, where you had some brains or something, or is that? Is that not an anecdote from you?
1: Um,
3: well, I've had brains in a num- number of countries. Brains are good.
2: <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> <Not omega-3. laughs> I don't
0: think. Nothing. You know. Nothing uh, else living, though. I don't no. know. I, I, I've heard. I've heard oh, like stories brain. of like. Oh, you,
3: you, you. I think what you're talking about is in China. Yeah. Um, monkey they, brain. Yeah, they 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 slice off the top of a, a monkey's head and, and then and then spoon yeah.
2: out the brains. Yeah. That's yeah. disgusting. That's disgusting. I, I think they also yeah. like um have you seen the table which they put the monkey oh. through and then they rivet it in oh. and then they oh. chop off the head. Yeah. And, I'm yeah. I'm sure that's yeah. illegal
3: now, but it's it, it probably still happens. Anyway, it's um, Yeah that
0: that's that's what I was thinking, but I couldn't remember if it's something that you told me you'd experienced or you heard of or something uh, like that. I wouldn't. I wouldn't do that.
3: Oh, yeah. but
2: speaking of controversial foods in Japan, I think uh, whale has to be on the menu. Have any of you guys tried whale meat? Uh, I have. Yeah? Once. Um, it's nothing really to ride home
0: about. Um, it's okay. pretty fatty. Um,
3: because it's like
2: a big deal for actually, Japanese lunches, I think.
0: Yeah, yes, last night when I was out at dinner, uh, one guy uh, I was there with, um, he was like, oh, I want to order some whale meat because it was on the menu. And he was, he was asking around, do you want some? And he came yeah, to me, do you want some? And I was like, no, no, I, I don't, wanna, I don't like want
2: to. It's like how people well. come to Colombia and look for like cocaine and stuff and in, go to Japan and just look for whale meat. <laughs> find find <laughs> your whale meat dealer. No, I mean, I remember it was in front of me and it smelled, it, smelled like, um, it smelled like pork and it smelled fishy and I wasn't into it. So I didn't think it was worth worth. No. putting demand on it because it didn't it didn't I don't know that was many years ago too and I was kind of still very vegetarian back then so it would have been a big ask. <laughs> but was,
3: I only had it once uh, when I was living there and um and uh ethically I <clears throat> I I just wanted to try it, but ethically yeah. it's not a great thing to do that.
2: No, now now no, not so much. Okay. Okay, yeah. that's that's pretty interesting. I mean, I could talk to you guys about maybe we should do another podcast where it's just talking about Japan and our experiences there and mm. our travels there, because it <laughs> seems like something that we could easily do. But uh, for, for now, Mike, do you have any particular questions when it comes to um, what well, I do? I know I do. About uh, Japan. Well, I've, this... I've heard all the stories
0: of my dad's experience in Japan. <laughs> <laughs> not, not to be told here. Yeah, well, you're, you're, you're <laughs> the result <laughs> of one, <laughs> I, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I guess, okay, so just expanding out beyond Japan, I'm curious. So, did you have a favorite country that you visited? Um, because I think you you mentioned, I think you've been to quite a few, like a few tens of countries. Um, I <laughs> should think of- Probably, um, if it's not 100, it's very close to that, yeah. (laughs) Okay, okay, that's Mm. quite... And do you have, like, a country that, I don't know, that I I guess it's hard to point out a favourite, but was there one in which you felt that this was a particularly mm, maybe interesting place but not very well known?
3: Um, Well, two I visited um, in the last... 10 years, um, mm. which I thought were interesting. I don't know whether they were more interesting than any, any of the other, um, uh, but <clears throat> but they were interesting. One was um, Cambodia. Oh, wow. Uh, of okay. course, it's most famous for Angkor Wat. Mm-hmm. But Vientiane is the, um, is the fastest growing city in Asia. Oh, really? uh, yeah, and it's um, quite exciting. Um, mm. um,
2: but Angkor Wat is... Something else you've got to see it. Yeah, it's like Tomb Raider. I mean, in my very lay okay. way, of <laughs> <laughs> experiencing so you know, it was like Tomb you know Raider. The three days for it, and yeah. uh, and
3: um, the other one for very different reasons. I, I went to Lebanon to to um, mm. research really um, the Phoenician ancient Phoenician cities of oh, Tyre, and Sidon. Um, and um, I just found the people were lovely. Um, yeah. The the excavations and the history fascinating. Um, uh, Beirut is a is a great city. Um, wow. Probably my favorite bar uh, around <laughs> the world that I can remember is in Beirut.
0: Um, oh, nice. Oh, is that the one? What's it called? The one where they take away your phones and so you. Yeah. So you have to communicate with people around you. You have to talk yeah. to people because
2: they take take away your phone. That's phenomenal. Um, What's it called? Do you I remember. <laughs> oh no, we'll we'll, 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 but it's yeah, just we'll up From the American University. Post it on a blog or something. Okay, uh, cool. Um, it's quite a cool. Cool concept. Five though. minutes walk from the American University, opposite. Oh, so, what what just really caught my attention there was you traveled to Lebanon to actually do like underground research of. The Phoenicians. Um, yeah. How did there's so many how how did how did that um, go? Like how did you? What inspired it? How did you plan it? And then what was it like on the ground? Actually, trying to get into the details of 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 this kind well, of.
3: Well, there are a few books mystery. Uh, there's a few books written on Phoenicians, but um, none of them are particularly comprehensive or. Or wonderful, in my humble opinion. Okay. But um, but the Phoenicians were the great traders of the Mediterranean.
1: Mm-hmm. But
3: they also traded um, through the Red Sea to India and, and East Africa. Um, they were and they were great engineers, and and they, and they were responsible for bringing many Indian uh, ideas, in, intellectual ideas, uh, into into the Mediterranean, which would wow. then use as they were trading with the Greeks, so, um, so I just I would, I'm curious, and and they also are reputed to be, um, and uh, many ancient writers say they were actually originally from Bahrain. Okay, um, and um, so um, it, it it was interesting standing in the in the excavations in Byblos,
1: mm.
3: by the way, wh- which was a. a uh, originally called uh, Gebel, which means mm. uh, God and Well, mm. um, and I was standing by the well in Biblos and looking up into the um, the Lebanese mountains, which are snow capped wow. all year round, all year and, round, and and the um, and the, um, uh, the the rivers and the streams running towards the from them, <laughs> and I could, of magic. and I mean, immediately went ah oh, because Bahrain is known for its sweet water, the, the, the sweet yeah. water that the wells up into, into um, and I thought, of course, this is why they came here. The water, it, water's crucial. So yeah, it was a, it was a good trip. <laughs> <laughs> that Sounds a phenomenal trip. <laughs> I yeah. could have thought through intellect, but, but, just, um, but just to see it was, was very valuable. And it's a it's a great place to go and have a and the food is not bad as well. A Lebanese food. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I love
2: yeah. Lebanese food.
0: I'm really yes. I'm really upset that I didn't go visit there whilst I was uh living in Dubai as well. Actually, it's uh, something I, I should have taken advantage of.
3: And and of course, yeah. the economy in its such perilous state, it's it's probably cheaper than when I went, which was cheap enough.
2: It's true. Mm. It's it's uh, yeah.
0: The Phoenicians don't really get much credit, do they? You don't you don't learn. Anything about them in school or or um it's basically all just the Romans or the Egyptians
3: yeah No, the Phoenicians yeah. were absolutely crucial um so you know the way I tell it in in the book um, is um is is that they were the crucial vectors for for intellectual knowledge transfer from india uh to 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 Greece which was a um which was important a lot of people just go back to Greece and say it's the greek yeah. miracle it wasn't a miracle it, they, they, they were introduced to these ideas
2: yeah in,
0: when you went went in in lebanon with it, did you see a lot of um uh ruins and is there a lot of uh evidence left over of yeah. phoenicians
3: yes um, in yeah. Biblos, um but there's also
0: there's also say the castles there as well you know um and so there's um, what's the, what's the most ancient stuff like how old how old is it that you can still see remains of?
3: Biblos. By- um, and it's conventionally dated to about 3000 BC, but wow. I I but um if you read my book oh my called, which I've I've plugged it already, haven't I? But it's more like it seven hundred and thirty. <laughs> I, I reckon. 2000s. How Two seven three oh, roughly. BC. 2730. 2730 BC. Okay, okay.
2: so that's so so that's that's three hundred years um, more recent than the conventional. Mm. Interesting. And uh, what? But by the way, uh, we have so for everyone listening, we have a, a an account which records, and then every every forty minutes, we'll, we'll cut us off, and then we'll just have to plug in the uh, various things. Maybe I just edit that part out, but uh, um, we've only got about five minutes. Five minutes. And left. <laughs> so if we finish this, if we maybe we just start a new link now, and then, okay. and then continue with sure, this sure, conversation sure. about uh, Phoenicia because it's amazing. So uh, we were talking about your estimated date for the Phoenicians, um, for for Bibli- was it Biblios being Biblios. that ar- biblos archaeological biblos. site being a two thousand seven hundred and thirty BC. Again, I have a triple of questions, three of questions. One is, what is Biblos, And um, what's the significance of the uh, earlier date? And, and, and no, later date? And, and why? And why do you think that?
3: Okay, well, Byblos, um, um, first of all, uh, we we'll go back uh, slightly to the Egyptians. Okay. Now, it's, it is, um, it is controversial. Um, before, before the end of the war, it was, um, it was the Second World War, um, mm-hmm. the accepted view of how the, the pharaohs, of, um, the origin of the pharaohs was that it was through invasion. Okay. And for no good reason other than fashion after the Second World War, it changed. And it changed because the theory that, it, that Egypt was invaded from Mesopotamia, from Uruk, Mm. Uh, was it, it was called the um, it was called the dynastic race theory, and anything to do with race after the Holocaust was kind of unfashionable. And also, as oh. people, as new countries were getting independence from from colonial masters, um, they were stressing their indigenous origins. Mm. But so it was really changed for no good no good reason other than fashion and a and a, and a dodgy title. But it seems to me that the, um, the uh, and, and quite a number of other historians, um, uh, it, it, it seems to us that um, the, the uh, invasion theory makes a lot more sense. And so, and also that, that, the, that it was coordinated with the arrival of Phoenicians in Lebanon. And why was that? Because um, they, in the deserts of Egypt, they needed timber to build their, uh, to build their um, big temples and so forth. Okay. And, and the best timber around was uh, the cedars of, of Lebanon,
1: which had
3: been imported um, by land, I suppose, uh, into Mesopotamia well before that. So, so, so they were shipping it down.
0: They were actually towing it down. And-, and there's still large, lots of cedar forests in uh, all over Lebanon at the moment, right? Well, um,
3: alas, I wish that were true. The, um, the uh, they are there, but are much diminished in size and protected now. It takes 50 oh, really? years for a cedar tree to actually start um, sprouting um, seeds. Um, and and it takes five hundred even a thousand years to to grow to full size.
2: Oh, wow! What? So, so you don't want to chop those guys down? Yeah. In, at, at so a rate. That's why they're protected now. So there's really now. A few left. <laughs> One every few hundred years. Um, so in that case, do 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 we see in Egypt like if um, cedar trees inside the construction of, of of some of these ancient sites in Egypt?
3: Yeah, I think so. I've I never really, uh, I've never really gone to Egypt to, uh, I have been to Egypt, but I haven't sailed down the Nile and, and looked at all the, all the temples. But um, mm. I, yes, but that's, <clears throat> that's what everybody says. And that's not controversial. A lot of what I say is controversial, <laughs> but that's not controversial. That's <laughs> widely accepted. <laughs> <laughs>
2: we like a good bit of well-reasoned controversy <laughs> this podcast. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Going back to the, back to the yeah. forest,
3: the, the Cedar Forest, uh, the Emperor Hadrian was the first one to put in legislation to protect the forest as a matter of interest.
0: Oh, wow. Oh, really? Hmm.
3: So... Because so, well, right, so they were already
0: chopping them all down by that point. At that point. Well, chopping them down ever since they... Um, ever they've been chopping but, them but down. to the to the point that they were they were they needed protecting yes. at the time of emperor
2: hadrian clearly yeah yeah it's incredible wow um it must be a little bit of a paradise as well because that region is generally quite dry and then suddenly you have this a huge amount of water and then you've got these big water guzzling trees in the middle of a generally dry region so i can see why mm. it was so important
0: mm. um Okay, it would be so cool to actually go there and see, like, how you know, because you would think mm. in that area you would be surrounded by desert almost, and then to to think that there are there are mountains there which are which are snow capped all year round with and rivers and
3: it, it's quite rich in vegetation.
1: Mm.
0: Yeah, it'll be amazing yeah, to so see. I would love so to see good. that kind of like juxtaposition. Ooh. Yeah,
2: incredible. Yeah does it okay
0: so so oh, actually during, yeah. during that that step, that point where we uh, where we switched uh um where we paused i mm. had a little look at um uh, biblos then also mm. i saw uh, i just looked at the ruins of um, lebanon and there's other other places like ba- Baalbek as well and there looks like a a big uh, temple which almost looks like um a greek temple Almost looks like the the, the um...
3: temple. It's the biggest Roman temple anywhere found.
0: Oh, it's uh, a Roman temple. Oh, wow. uh, okay, so it's not uh, that's not Phoenician.
3: No, um, in fact, the the, the Roman um, uh, the the Roman ruins in Baalbek are considered mm. so important that archaeologists have decided not to dig to the Phoenician layers below.
0: Oh wow! Oh really? <laughs> that's incredible. But then, what? Are the, the, there are these. Big stones in Baalbek, as well, which are some uh, away like a thousand two hundred tons each or something. Um, which no one knows how they managed to move these around or use them in construction, like uh, six stones of Baalbek or something. Um, I don't,
3: I don't recall that. I
2: don't recall that. So, so, um is it so? Yeah. So I just want to get back to the um, whole two thousand seven hundred and thirty BC thing. So is is that considered uh, a controversial date, and and why do you think it's um, it it should be moved, or should be considered well, a more recent okay. date? Yeah.
3: Um, again, um, just like um, there's a view among some historians that we ought to go back to the invasion by, by uh, of. Um, by the pharaohs, mm. that's the origin of pharaonic Egypt, uh, about the same number, about the same historians, also think there's a 300-year error in Mediterranean chronology. Okay. Um, and um, that was not, cons- again, that was uh, not considered um, a view until until the science of archaeology came in, in the ni- 19th century. Mm. Very roughly, um, you get, <clears throat> and this is only in the Mediterranean, but it 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 it, it affects um, it affects Indian history as well because right. Indian history is done, uh, ancient history is some is done by by relationship to Mediterranean chronology and some mm. by uh, by um, uh, scientific dating methods, so okay. it's confused and confusing um so um the, the and w- what has had to happen it, it's it's quite complicated but what's had to happen is mm. that um the trojan war uh, tr- is traditionally dated to 1183 ridiculously imprecise date bc mm. um, yeah. and then there's a and then there's a, a 300 year 280 300 year gap when nothing happens, oh. we call it dark age. It's, okay, uh, and traditionally they say, "Well, there's no pottery, uh, there's no writing, uh, we can't find anything in these layers." Um, and then suddenly, civilization bounds back with even more mm. vigour than than it was at pre-Trojan War, um, at, with shipping stuff all over the place. And logically, that's nonsense, isn't it? I mean. You can't, you you know, in terms of just in terms of shipping, you, yeah. and learning uh, and the writing, you can't just yeah. bounce back suddenly. <laughs> yeah. when, when actually, when actually, most uh, shipping and, and the economy was completely and utterly uh, screwed at the end of the, mm. um, the end of the Roman Empire mm. around um, the sixth and the seventh century A.D. Mm. It took. Yeah. Took virtually a thousand years to get back to the same levels as, as, um, as the first and second century um, AD. Right. So it doesn't just happen. Yeah. So, uh, and the reason is uh, that um, archaeologists and historians have relied on an ancient text <coughs> called Manetho, mm. a Greek historian, who uh, who who um, went. Um and listed all the pharaohs. Mm-hmm. but some when Egypt was weak, some some pharaohs or kings uh, reigned in different parts of Egypt simultaneously. It wasn't always united. but the list has been taken to a linear a linear <laughs> list, so that the 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 third intermediate period in Egyptian history, which okay. uh, is uh, the period where um, political authority breaks down mm-hmm. is, in the conventional chronology, about 300 years long. Actually, it's probably much, much shorter. Uh, okay. and, therefore, and therefore, the whole of that dark age period needs to be compressed to a to, uh, couple of decades of civil war in Greece, maybe, but, but nothing more okay. than that.
0: Um, and... Wait, wait, so I don't understand why there was a period where, what, why, what's the significance of there being uh, multiple different pharaohs ruling at the same time and why that, why that result in a dark age?
3: Well, it doesn't result in a dark age. There is no dark age. Well, I mean, I mean, the, 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 the period. In a, in a a linear chronological form, rather than having them two or three reigning together and... When the Assyrians invaded in the, um, in the 7th century um, BC, um, they said 20 kings reigned, and I think Herodotus says 12. So, or was it the other way around? But anyway, it was, it was a, a, a lot. So yeah. instead of
0: listing them one after the other chronologically. Yeah. Um, uh, okay, yes, I see sir. what you mean. So then basically it looks like a lot more time passed than, than actually it did. Exactly. Oh, okay. All right. Now, and then, now, and then there isn't, there aren't records. Other records around no, outside of Egypt to no, fill in that clarification. Gap. Yeah. The, okay. Yeah.
3: So, yeah. so that some historians, um, many years ago, had, had questioned this. Um, mm. A.R. Burn, um, who worked in the 1930s, and then wrote uh, was kind of forced into silence about it. But he counted back the Spartan king list and thought maybe the Trojan War was around 1000. Isaac Newton tackled mm. this problem, strangely enough, oh, I wow. know he's, known, he's known for other things, but he's yeah. he a polymath. And he thought 900. Wow. And I reckon it was, I think Isaac Newton was pretty close there. Um, okay. but, why did Isaac Newton have interest in this? Um, why did he have interest? I mean, he was, he was a polymath, he was interested in everything, wasn't he?
2: Yeah, I think back then it was a lot yeah. more uh, normal for intellectuals to be, um, como, like like uh, <laughs> I spoke a bit of Spanish there, uh, um, to be polymaths, right? Yes. Um to to be interested in many domains and yeah, like mm, okay, to, cool. Yeah, we're much more specialised these but, days. But the,
3: the, the main proponents of, in recent times uh, are um, are a couple of historians that are, are writing and and. Uh, uh, they're they're referred to in my book. I won't go into it, but I mean, mm. they're, they're, their books are worth reading. But I come okay. at it from a, from a shipping angle. They come at it from an archeological,
2: from a trade uh, angle, mm. marine trade, maritime trade angle. Okay, so this is this is holding up in my mind now. I'm getting kind of a picture of uh, what what was going on in this in this time. And so and so, and so when you say that the Phoenicians were uh, important in bringing Indian ideas to Greece. Um, What period of time were these ideas transferred? And, uh, well, yeah, to start with that, what what kind of period of time were these ideas transferred to Greece and which ideas were they?
1: The
3: the Phoenicians had been um, uh, trading, as I said, um, uh, around the Middle East um, and into India, probably since they first arrived. Mm. Um, that, that evidence is pretty difficult to get, but pr- probably since they first arrived. Mm, okay. um, but um, when in, in this third intermediate period, oh, and they have been using Egyptian ports on the Red Sea for those voyages.
1: Mm.
3: And when Egypt broke down politically um, in the 9th, 10th um, tenth, tenth century BC, Mm. um they needed um they needed another port and so king Hiram of Tyre did a deal with king Solomon of Jerusalem uh to use his port on the Gulf of Aqaba oh, wow. a port called Ezin Geba, and um it's near where Aqaba is now basically and Jordan and they and they, here we here we go into the bible and the Bible is very clear about them uh, trading every three years down to India and bringing back ivory and peacock feathers and, oh, wow. and well, all, all this kind of thing. Now, I saw this, and, and they did this for 100 years until um, Judah, Israel split into Israel and Judah. Uh, mm. Judah became very religiously um, uh, militant and mm. and stop and stop the uh, phoenicians from from um, uh, from these voyages, okay. and they had to wait again uh, a few hundred years until until Egypt recovered, which was in the seventh century. and then they could start again so um, okay. I, I, I said, okay, well that, that seems pretty clear. They were making okay. these regular voyages in okay. various books in the bible um, ezekiel and uh, and Isaiah, um, and kings and chronicles, all, all basically attest to the same story. Okay. So, and we know that ideas travel with, um, with seafaring, so, mm. um, so what, what ideas could possibly have come? And they, mm. these, these come into two sections. One, secular ideas, okay. um, wow. and that is, and that is um, philosophical ideas, and in particular, uh, the Jain idea of um, atomism, atomic theory, oh.
1: okay. uh,
3: which, which um, the Indians were doing before. The, the Greek philosophers latched on to the same idea. And they- and
1: even, and even- Atomic they, theory
0: just being, being what?
3: Well, the, the stuff is composed of atoms.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh,
3: mm. and, and, um, and they both had the, these ideas, Apparently, simultaneously, actually, the uh, the Indian ideas were uh, preceded those, and we can, can take those. Um, and and then the other the other thing is why did the Hebrews suddenly um, not suddenly but gradually ditch their pantheon of gods and elect for um, the, the greater god uh, Yah- Yahweh, mm. and then the only god. Why did they go to monotheism? And okay. nobody has satisfactorily answered this question. But when you when you <clears throat> when you go to um, ancient Indian texts, you go to the um, the Bhagavad Gita. Mm. Um, I mean, that's uh, as you may know, that's the um, discussion between Arjuna and the Supreme Being. Yeah, uh, and you know, I am the controller, the, the Supreme mm. Controller. The Lord of Lords, and you know what? Great mm. chunks of, the, of of that book are direct directly quoted in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Really? Yep, uh,
2: and the I, ideas as well. That's. I would. Uh, yeah, that's that's mind blowing. If if that's. Mm. Wow. Um, even
3: because... for, even quotes. You know, Lord of Lords is is one that you find in in various books in the Bible. Uh, and and it's in the back Gita as well.
2: Many times, it's isn't. a
0: shame they don't have a a reference section in the in the Bible. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> and,
3: the, and, the, and the very fact that um, the Hebrews were were um, decided to write down their history, mm. their law code, um, and, and and everything else, um, actually the Old Testament. Why did they do that? Um, and the traditional answer is. Well, they were, they were enslaved by the Babylonians, um, the Assyrians, and then the Babylonians, mm. and said, well, we better write down our history. But then lots of people were enslaved by the <clears throat> Assyrians and Babylonians, and they weren't similarly minded. Um, so what mm. could it be? It is travelling to India and seeing mm. this rich um, heritage of literature, um, yeah. uh, which is the world's oldest and, and most voluminous, Mm. um and you know the Manusmitri is the is the indian law code or the one mm. that survives so they said oh we we but we better write ours and they wrote leviticus but of course okay. their law code is, is not as tolerant uh, <laughs> and uh, as as
0: um, as manusmitri well, so manusmitri how, how how does that do you know roughly? well
3: parts of it are in the um are in the Ram, um are in the Mahabhatra, which um, I, I think you can date to somewhere around 1800 BC, but uh, 8, 1,800 BC, but that, that again is controversial. Some people dated much, uh, uh, much later, but, um, yeah, the, the yeah, thing about Indian literature is mm. that it is that they gathered knowledge mm. and they continually taking an old text and then adding to it. Mm. <clears throat> and, and if you, um, if you ever read the Karma sutra you'll see that um, the, um, the 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 introduction is i am yeah. specifically adding to the, the knowledge of many of my forebearers.
2: that's that's, oh, wow, that's all of that <laughs> citation system that's uh, that's really cool so uh, this makes you because i'm really curious now about um about this so, uh, do we have well documented, like written stuff from India, going uh, how far? And do we have that? And how far back does that go? Um,
3: um, well, the Rig Veda supposedly the oldest book. Um, mm. And uh, whereas that used to be said that it's well 1,500 years old or, or, or 1,500 BC. Mm. um modern research uh, suggests that li- this goes back to somewhere around 4500 BC
2: <laughs> no okay is that, is that because of astrological like astrological yeah, knowledge. Astrological... yeah uh, uh,
3: with astronomical knowledge um, drawing on astronomical knowledge probably from the 8th millennium BC
2: oh wow. Uh, and and so 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 yeah so i, I was because i don't quite understand what astronomical knowledge is, because I'm a layman. But
3: well, modern scholars have taken um, yeah. movements of the stars, mm. way back into ancient history. And, okay. then they, and then they compared it with the texts. Uh, and they say, well, this, this seems to reflect knowledge going back. You
2: know. ah, okay, okay. And so and so in India, people were, were, were writing, or, because I know we have a strong oral tradition and my understanding was that it was um, still kind of everything was still heavily uh, kind of passed on orally until maybe like the 1500s or something like no earlier than that but of course I seem to be wrong here so so is there there like actual written scripts from that people are dating?
3: There's four Vedas and then there's the um, and, and then there's the Shustras or the Shastras, I think. Shastras. Um, the Shastras. And then you've got um, you've got the Upanishads. I mean, it, yeah. it's a huge, huge, um, of and I've I've read, yeah. I've read some of them. I've, I've read some of them. Rig Veda is very difficult to read. Yeah. Um, but, but the it is. But the um, uh, the Bhagavad Gita. I, I think that's that's pretty simple. The Upanishads yeah. is a bit. <clears throat> it's, it's it's easy to read, but it's more difficult to grasp, I would say. Um, yeah, just um, songs, aren't they? No, it's a philosophy about. Yeah. um Oh, there's a, there's another one. <clears throat> um, you know, in um, there's another link. Okay. Um, um, You know, the the Bible used to say, um, "I've written this down just because." Um, hang on. <laughs> the Bible funny. used. Um, yeah, in Genesis, it used to it used to read, "In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth." Mm. And in 1988, uh, mm. a translator came up with a, another another one, another translation, mm. which um, he uh, said is this: "At the beginning of God's creating the heavens and the earth, when the earth was wild and waste, darkness over the face of the ocean." Breath of God hovering over the face of the waters. God said, let there be light. And this was used by in the New Revised Standard Version, with ocean being changed to the deep and breath of God, wind of God. Now, two two observations I would make here. One, the Hebrews were a pastoralist hill tribe. What are they doing talking about the origins of the world as the ocean?
2: Okay, yeah. Where did
3: you get that from?
2: And why is that significant? Yeah.
3: and the key is because in India has the same tradition and mm. the breath of God or the wind of God is directly from the Upanishads' philosophy.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's, so, that's mind-bending, yeah. <laughs> did, you,
0: did, you, did you know this um, before? What was the idea of uh, talking about India... Um, as more of the cradle of civilization, something that you found whilst writing this book,
3: or yeah, I, I, just you... to
1: write
0: a, I just wanted to write a book about maritime trade because nobody
3: else had done it, and then I was quite yeah. happy, quite happy to kind of read books and and uh, <laughs> um, with the cradle of civilization being the Middle East, um, unlikely though it is because it's a desert, but I, I was quite happy. But then <laughs> when when I started <clears throat> asking questions that nobody else apparently has. Like mm. what was traded? Where did it come from? Mm. Um, and um, then it was seemed to me that the that the flow of goods needed to sustain Sumerian Mesopotamian mm. civilizations must have come from India um, and from mm. uh, from Gujarat uh, yeah. essentially, and from the Gulf of Cambay, um, yeah. and had probably done so for uh, uh, well. Since and here we go back to the Ice Age, mm. since um, since uh, the Ice Age, or shortly thereafter, because ports have now been found off uh, yes. West Coast of India underneath the ocean, mm. in the Gulf of Cambay.
1: Yeah. Um, mm.
0: So so basically, the further nice. the more you research, the further back in time uh, it it was clear to you it went. It went.
3: Well, if, uh, <laughs> you know that. that um, that that India was really the centre of this, and there were various pulses. After all, we all speak an Indo-European language. Right. Um, And um, Mm. apart from, in Europe, apart from the Basques and the Finns. Finns
2: and Hungarians, I think.
3: Yes, and Hungarians. So so how did that happen? Well, um, partly, partly that was, again, that's to do with the end of the Ice Age, I would suggest, that not only did the warm... Uh, did the world warm and the and the uh, oceans rise, mm. but the glaciers in the Himalayas melted, which mm. created these great big drainage channels, especially mm-hmm. the Indus and the Sarasvasti. And this was where probably 10% of the world's population lived at this time. Um, right. And they were able to ship stuff to the Middle East to s- sustain those civilizations.
2: That's super- And this is something quite... Interesting that Mike and I, uh, it was mentioned here, but Mike and I stumbled across this idea too that, you know, we're now being able to um, do archaeology, like submarine archaeology. We're able to now kind of, we have sonar, we can see things that are under the water. Yeah. And of course, speaking of all the ice melting, and a lot of the land being flooded, that would have been coastal before. Of course, this would reshape our kind of image of what the world looked like back then and 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 where the big cities were because if we were only doing really terrestrial archaeology we would never even come across that information um, so so I think I think it's like I, I say that just to say that um, you know we're in a time now where we're finding a lot lot more information than we had before so it's we should be opening our minds and trying to update our image of you know, being open to new information about about what the world looked like back then, but changing our perceptions, changing our perceptions, yeah, as you know, with evidence, right? Um, that's coming about because of technology, and so in Mesopotamia at that time, what what did things look like there? I mean, you, you say it was a desert. Was it um, a greener desert? Um, it was more like a savanna?
3: Well, I think so. The the mm. um, the um, the desertification of the sahara seems to have happened in somewhere in the fourth millennium bc mm. so it's reasonable to assume that, that the same thing happened in the middle east so when um, you see for, around the time of the flood 5600 bc it seems that new people from the east arrived in mesopotamia and um, and they didn't speak the same language, probably the origin of the Tower of Babel uh, fable, um, yeah. and the confusion of languages. Yeah. Um, and and they they set up these civilizations. So five thousand six hundred BC, it was probably a sensible place, even though there wasn't there wasn't any timber. So they got there by the sea, but the Indians had to supply them with with food yeah. because they had no timber. but okay. um but, um, yeah, the, it so gradually became gra- gradually became more and more desertified, if, if that's a word. Um, uh, I suppose, along with the Sahara, yeah,
2: super, super interesting. okay. And um, just trying to think about uh, the a question now. Mike, let you fill in the fill in the blank whilst it comes back to me. <laughs> um, well, you
0: were asking about Mesopotamia. I mean, so yeah, yeah uh, I mean, the Sahara desertification is also an interesting one because that that that's changed between uh, going into a desert and being a more lush area as well, hasn't it? Multiple times throughout throughout history. Mm, it was
3: a a- so.
0: And and that's something we talked about last time as well in our in our podcast that how how the climate we have to consider the climate would have been completely different uh, after um, the ice age or just after the ice age and and then um, so India and Southeast Asia would have been more temperate regions um, and then and then um, everywhere north of that essentially I think. Europe would have been accessible because it would have been completely locked in ice. Um,
3: North Europe anyway, yeah.
0: Yeah. So yeah, just imagining India as a temperate place as well, is, it sounds a bit a bit um odd. Um <laughs> but yeah, during during the time of the Indus Sarasvati, would it have been a temperate region as well?
3: Um well <clears throat> um <sighs> Well, yes, but the climate was changing and it was becoming warmer. So, yeah. um, but of course, the yeah. um disappeared. Um, again, this has been carbon dated, but very imprecisely, and I can't find out uh, the what the imprecision is. Um, I've looked and searched, but I can't. I, I can't find the source of this. But it's somewhere around
0: 1,900 BC. It's going to
3: dry it The Sarasvast dried up. Mm. Um, but lots of these rivers in this river basin had changed course because this is where the um, Indian Ocean uh, uh, plate comes up against the Himalayan plate. And so mm. it's continuously, yeah. lots of earthquakes happening there. Uh, have happened. And and these change the course of rivers. Um, And this had been happening throughout uh, ancient history. But this one, uh, or maybe a series of earthquakes, diverted uh, the the Sarasvasti into the Ganges. And so the sacredness of the Sarasvasti
0: was transferred to
1: Mm. the
2: Ganges. Oh, Sarasvasti. Is there no... Well, yeah, I was wondering. Is there...
0: In the in the Rig Veda they talk about the seven rivers and Ganges isn't one of those. So Ganges wasn't wasn't didn't exist then?
3: The, the
0: Ganges did exist then. Um, but um it just it just got bigger because the Sarasvati River was channeled yeah. into and all the water, so, ah, I, see, I see
2: because of earthquakes. I, I remember my question now. It was to do with um, it's to do with food and language, and because you said that we all speak in the Indo-European language, and is that because um, you know what is is that because india was a great civilization and all the trade and information that passed along influenced other cultures all the way as far as europe or people no i don't think so or, or was I, it? I, yeah.
3: I think um uh, thanks for bringing me back
2: to that i think this is what happened by I the think... way since, since since you're starting that uh, let's kick the next link <laughs> i think that's what happened we kick the next link because it's oh yeah it's five about minutes, yeah. cut out Okay, so we're back with uh, the question, why is it that Indo-European languages are spoken uh, from Europe through to through to India, basically, and Central Asia, and, and, um, and, yeah, and what's, what's the cause of, of that, well. and some of Southeast Asia? Wow. Okay,
3: well, I think this is what happened. At the end, uh, as the ice age was coming to an end, mm. um, and rivers kept diverting in Northwest India, um, this encouraged people to start moving to west and north to mm. lands which were previously cold and hostile but are now warming and, and inviting. Okay. And this is the origin of the... And, and some went to Anatolia and stayed there. Some moved through uh, through um, uh, Eastern Europe. A- and that is basically uh, the Germanic Slavic um, uh, language languages.
1: Okay. Um,
3: and, then, and then somewhat later, um, um, those in in um, um in Anatolia mm. um, they started moving through the Mediterranean um, and, uh, and some went up into Italy and southern France and okay. some um, through the Straits of Gibraltar. Now this these are not the Germanic Slavic languages. these are the what's called the italo celtic uh, oh, language okay. and, and they they branched off and the italo became Romance languages, and the Celtic uh, traveled up the coast of Spain, France,
2: yeah, Basque um,
3: through quite uh, bypass by, by, by bypass the Basques okay because they're non-indo-european speaking okay. And um into the Irish Sea and populated Cornwall Wales, Scotland and Ireland
2: okay
3: wow Well, probably probably Cornwall um, probably up up until around where stonehenge is now
2: so, so if i'm if, if I'm getting this correctly, it was uh, languages developed in India and then people from India moving with the rivers yeah. uh, and and then encountering other peoples, I guess, which then adopted the language and then moved themselves and then this language Um, system passed on?
3: Well, because they were farmers, um, um, farming communities um, are able to um, provide for much bigger populations than hunter gatherers.
1: Right.
3: So it was a fact that they were farmers. um, And you know, Jared Diamond has done has done studies in New Guinea, mm. uh, where he looked at farming populations and hunter gatherers. Mm. And he and he, by his figures, the figures are something like forty to fifty times um, the, the tribes doing farming are forty mm. to fifty times bigger than the hunter gathering right. tribes. So right. there will like, be more um,
0: displacement.
3: Um, there's probably displacement as, as intermarrying. But the, the evidence mm. worldwide seems to be that hunter gatherers marry into hunter gatherer women, marry into farming men, mm. never the other way around. So you can oh. you can see that um, that that's
2: why uh, yeah. that happened. I think so farming is high value. Um, mm. So how, so so this I believe this is the point at which um, we we can because Mike and I spoke about this before, but there's there's a contrasting. View of this spread of Indo-European languages, if I'm not wrong, which is that the source was somewhere in Central Asia, probably somewhere in like um, which is now Russia, and and those were the original tribes which then spread across to Europe and then into India and spread language in India,
3: yeah. But this is a this is a 19th century racist invention, really, <laughs> because um, well, you better call it what it is, because yeah. Um, You know, um, the evangelical, I mean, whereas in the 18th century, the Brits came into into India without any racial um, feeling whatsoever, Mm. by the late 19th century evangelical Christianity and the fact that women could come uh, and join their husbands through the Suez Canal in a matter of weeks Mm. um, and basically put an end to interracial um, marriage Sex liaisons um, and and so the white and brown became ever more divergent, and so oh wow the feeling was that um, that you know these um, these Indians with their supersti- superstitious stuff and all this nonsense of the in the Rig Veda and, and all this this is all superstitious nonsense. They got to they got to learn Christianity, and so mm. they couldn't have invented all this themselves anyway. Um, and it must have come from us, us superior whities somewhere, yeah. which is all yeah. nonsense, because I, I lay it out in my book in great detail on multiple levels why this is just a load of old nonsense. But regrettably, you'll still find people, it's called the Aryan myth, yeah. uh, the, the Aryan invasion of India. Um, but uh, But you'll still find, although I would say most sensible historians have sign this to the dustbin now. Okay. You'll still find linguists studying at university still trying to find the origin of a pre-Sanskrit, proto-Sanskrit. Yeah. They, um, um, in pre-Indo-European studies, PIE. I mean, they're wasting their time. It's <laughs> a quest. It's searching for a unicorn, you know.
2: Yeah, I mean, because it seems like the the more and more you paint the picture, the more and more it seems like, okay, yeah, there were melting glaciers, there were rivers and water flowing in India at the time when there wasn't so much, everything was either iced up or relatively dry. They had timber, they had makes sense and they began to farm for this reason. So this makes sense of bigger populations. More people means more thinking and of course, more ideas being formed. And then that at that period of time being the population then, which then Carried on spreading, because that's what you do when you're successful, you continue that's to right. spread.
3: And and this has all been, this has all been um, covered up really by, well, the Aryan invasion. The, the evangelical Christians um, in the late 19th century started uncovering um, all this archaeology in the dry mm-hmm. desert of the Middle East, and which is also the origin of Christianity, Palestine and all that. And so there's myth that the, the Middle East is a of civilization appeared and logically it's
2: nonsense, right? Yeah. Well, now that makes sense because yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm aware of, um, I think we mentioned this a few times in previous podcasts, like interpretation, like how, how important it is to for people to have a root in something. And there was a big push, especially in 19th century in Europe to put our, to, to kind of connect, especially the UK and these kinds of places, into Greece and, and, and into, you know, what's considered the origin in Jerusalem and, and make mm. that the center of the world. Um, and, and that's led to, I mean, for example, the big bias of the Taj Mahal, a short tangent, seen as a national symbol of India, like the most <clears throat> amazing building. But that's only because when the British came, they couldn't accept Hindu architecture which is actually mixed with Greek, but all, all, all the iconography, and uh, including sexual iconography because of the Kama Sutra as a spiritual angle to it, but they didn't see that. They just saw barbarianism or something that they couldn't tolerate, so preferred the more conservative Islamic oh, white monument. The and
3: of the Hull would fit it right into the uh, kind of pious Victorian mm-hmm. uh, ide- family ideas of a, of a doting dead husband who is putting up some memorial to his, to his
2: dead wife. Just I mean, right up their street, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Super interesting. And so then, so that, that makes, that's creating an image around the language um, and spreading the language. And of course, you do have, I think, Sanskrit names of kings throughout, uh, I think, what the Hittites as well. Yeah, which um, is a part, is that part um, of the that, spread?
3: Well, that, that, <clears throat> After the Sarasvasti dried up, Mm. all the the amazing numbers of cities and towns and subsidiary settlements that depended on it um, also meant huge migration, much of it to the Ganges. Mm. Um, One historian uh, suggests that another another lot went to Sri Lanka
1: Mm.
3: uh, where... Probably the Ramayana and the Lankapura uh, yeah. uh, is yes. the origins of that. Yeah. Um, and other historians suggest that um, the Kassites, Hittites um, and Mitanni uh, were bands of uh, displaced warriors who went through, into the, into the, through the Persian Gulf, into the Middle East that way, and suddenly they appear uh, with Vedic gods Mm. Um, and, uh, and, and chariot rate, and not chariot racing, chariot warfare introduced into the Middle East for the first time.
1: But mm. oh, This but is something we talked about in the last one as well.
3: But yeah. The Battle of the Ten Kings um, in, in India, uh, which is described in, in great detail in, in the literature, now I think um, dated to somewhere around 3,100 BC, mm. it's been going on in India for ages. But now suddenly gets imported into the Middle East and is used um, by the Hittites, the Mitanni, and and the Egyptians have to have to do mm. this as well to counter the to, to counter
2: both. Oh wow. Mm. Oh wait. So this is again linking to something else that um I think Mike mentioned was there, was there an influence then of India on Egypt as well? Or well by that well, time was Egypt broken down?
3: Um the around 1500-1600 BC, in the conventional chronology, Egypt is invaded by people that are called the Hyksos. And nobody really knows too much about it, but it, it seems to me that they're probably Mitanni. Um, okay. uh, but they get kicked out after 100 years. So their influence on uh, Egyptian civilization is... Very little
2: indeed for that. All right, interesting. And I think you mentioned also earlier about um, food and timber coming from India into the Middle East. I'm mm. I, I, so so I have heard of something called the Fertile Crescent, and that's supposed to be where um, a lot of our d- domestication of crops, especially wheat, and and happened, and therefore. I, that's one of the reasons why it's thought of also as as a cornerstone to civilization, right? Because there was there was there was farming and stuff happening there. What was how how does the trade in food from India relate to the idea of the Fertile Crescent being the center of, oh. of the Mesopotamian wheat? The
3: fertile, I mean, the origin of of farming, mm. um, it used to be said, was in one place and one place only. That was the Fertile Crescent, and mm. specifically eastern Turkey. Yeah. Um, But these days, um, it it appears that uh, it was certainly in India. uh, There's there's, uh, evidence in Sri Lanka Mm. and in the New Guinea highlands. Mm, uh, Farming farming goes back and probably got there from uh, the New Guinea lowlands, which Mm. are now underwater because of the flood. Right. Uh, Mm. and, And so I think we can now, I think it's now more or less accepted apart from really died in the wall traditionalists that, mm. that, farming, uh, that that farming that farming was um, multiple, multiple sources, sources. Mm. although although turning it really back on its head is it possible that it really was invented in one place and that is East Asia in the mm. in, in what used to be called sunderland and then traveled to India and then um <laughs> Um, I mean I don't. Yeah. Know. No, this is fantastic amazing. because
2: Sunderland and 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 all these places are are I think our next destination in the conversation in, in any case. And we've spoken about it a lot in the last few podcasts. So so Sunderland
0: and, and Muddaloo.
2: <laughs> yeah. So so we've been talking about um India being this kind of having this large population and all the reasons behind it and how it most likely uh, well, reasons at least for, 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 for it to be the source of many um, languages and things. Out, yeah, yes. Yeah, starting civilization going west, but also in that same period of time, what did Southeast Asia look like? Sundaland, especially, and how did they influence India or the West? Or, well,
3: we don't know. Yeah. Um, I, I think is the is the easiest answer. We know that that. <clears throat> When the flood hit India, mm. the ports were drowned, but it has a a fairly sharp continental shelf, mm. so very little was was flooded, um, and the ports were rebuilt further further up the rivers uh, on the then coast or up mm. further inland. The continental shelf in Southeast Asia was so shallow that mm. it was virtually wiped out, um, only a few islands re- remaining, yeah and unlike um the Unlike West Coast India, where ports have been found underneath the water, mm. nothing much has been found in Asia. But apart from some some rock structures off the Pengu Archipelago um, and off Oki- Okinawa, is...
2: mm. okay,
3: um, and and some and they look they look as though they're man made. Um, okay, I mean when they were first um, when they were first discovered. Incredulous scientists said, "No, they can't be man-made. They must be. They must be volcanic or, or formations. These sharp angles and but, I mean, it's just they they are, and they were drowned by the flood. But there's no there's no evidence so far of ports.
0: Um, but a, a lot more land was lost in Southeast Asia compared yeah. to India, right? So, like yeah. a, a landmass the size of India was lost. Yes, wasn't
2: it?"
3: It was because 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 the continental shelf was so shallow.
2: Yeah, and actually, mm. I mean, that, that even even now, like when we spoke about the New Guinea highlands and then the lowlands um, being submerged, but the current New Guinea lowlands are just marshlands. They they they're flooded um, before you get to the mountains, and I think that's true for a lot of islands around Southeast Asia that they still have quite uh, flat, you know, shallow shallow. Uh, area of land before you get to various um, mountains. So sea levels are still rising. <laughs> um, I wonder mm-hmm. what that what that's going to mean for for that part of the world going going forwards 100 and 200 years. Um, yeah.
0: Do you, think it's, do you think it's possible that we could uh, do you think any kind of like trace of civilization back then? Uh, if it's underwater is lost? Do you think there's any way that can be found?
3: I, I've no idea. I, I mean, one has to hope. I mean, you know, techniques of. Um, um, I mean, the thing is, the, the ocean is vast, isn't it? Um, mm-hmm. And um, and we don't know where where to look to a certain extent. So, okay. Um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but,
0: but there are but there are on land as well, like you know, the Mount Padang in Java, which is which dates back to potentially twenty thousand years ago, fourteen thousand years ago. Um, a- Mount,
3: Mount Padang is the um, is uh, about seventy miles away from from uh, from um, 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 capital of um, capital of Indonesia, mm,
2: Jakarta. I
3: think Jakarta. Thank you. Mine <laughs> and um, and it was known about for ages, and it looked like a, a pyramid, and um, and on top of it. Is a is a step pyramid mm. with um, with andesite standing stones, mm. um, and in two thousand and twelve, <clears throat> um, an Australian and um, uh, Indonesian team in, mm. had a look at it, and it looks as though the whole mountain is a pyramid. Wow. And, um, <laughs> and so, um, and they've now oh, and man. a second second look of, a couple of years later they They looked in with sonar testing they looked in and, and tried to scoop in to the to the burial chambers below, mm. and the stuff that they got out carbon dated to between fourteen and fourteen thousand b c and
0: twenty four thousand b c whoa twenty four thousand b c Wow yeah no, so that... right in
3: the middle of the last glacial maximum, somebody was building this Duh.
2: no if that's that would completely change <laughs> my perspective of what people were doing um, that long ago. My goodness. Well,
1: well and, when do you think uh, about
2: it, well, I mean, people got to Australia by boat
3: roughly um,
2: 50,000 or 60,000 BC. Um, pay... <clears throat> so, okay. so is it that, is it that uh, crazy? It, would, would it have been by... Like linking question because it's like would it been by boat? Or would they be able to have crossed the land at that point in time? Because it would have all been. Uh, no, they, they
3: would have um, uh, it, the, the, certainly the, the land bridge. Um, there was no land bridge, but they mm. they would have had to cross at probably seven or eight uh, stretches of water.
2: Oh wow! And so yeah, rafts or boats. Yeah, mm. so that would have been quite. That would have had to yeah. 60,000 years ago. So it makes sense that like 40,000 years later, they're, they're doing something a bit more advanced. Yeah. My God. And I guess to, to take a tangent, my mind's drifting now to um, the big hole in our geography, in all of this storytelling, which is China. Uh, do, we, do we know what in this period where Southeast Asia and India were developing? Because China's also has its... Sophisticated agriculture has its own language, has its own everything pretty much. Um, You know, so, 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 was it, did it advance a lot later and independently, or was it also influenced? um,
1: Well, I haven't, uh,
3: to be honest, I haven't done a lot of research on China because, Mm -hmm. I mean, I, you know, I was writing a book on maritime trade, Mm -hmm. but. um,
2: Oh, that's true. They were maritime.
3: China. Uh, the coastal areas of China mm. were inhabited by Austronesians called Yu, in um, or Yi Yu, um, until well until the Warring States period, which is uh, like 300 BC, um, when <coughs> uh, the Chinese made war against the Yu um, and you know and and centralised mm. uh, and basically kicked out or. Technically cleansed or mm. uh, integrated, the remaining uh, you. Okay. some of whom might still have been around, around 700 AD, but but they were being okay. cleared
2: out. And that was the transition there. Mm. Super interesting. Wow, I know, I know. Um, well, actually, I have one last teeny tiny question. That's that's just been on my mind, and and then after that, I think, uh, yeah, I don't know if 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 you want to call the podcast because my brain is full of information Um, and and, and, and new images, Um, which is that. So when we're talking about India, um, what what is the uh, is are we dating all of um, all these things to do with how how are we dating? The Rig Veda and the Mahabharata and all this stuff. Are we doing it by actually finding a piece of paper or metal with with, with words stamped into it? Or is it more reading the ideas and, and then relating it to periods of time when we've seen these ideas pop up in other places? Okay, well, I <coughs> yeah.
3: The um, um are we dating them? I think is is the um, we we touched on this a little bit earlier. Yeah, astronomical reading um, okay. um, because until until we could do that by computer, mm. sophisticated computer, okay. um, we um, you know the, the, the dating was basically fixed to about one thousand five hundred BC, um, uh-huh. and and that that was because. Um, it was originally translated by a, a German chap, um, uh, obviously enormously clever, but in his, in his youth he was a strict Christian and thought the world was uh, was um, uh, made in 4,000 4, years old. Mm. So he dated them to 1500 BC. It was a pure guess. Wow. And later in life he admitted that it was a pure guess. Um, and <laughs> And he said, it's the minimum, it, it, and it, it could be much older. So, okay. but, the, but the problem was that nobody else was listening. By this time, it had become ingrained as fact. And it's mm-hmm. only in these last few decades that that gradually, and it's really slowly, that the academic world is gradually uh, accepting that this is uh, much older than than, it, uh, than he thought. Interesting. And now I think I'm being...
0: I assume there's no original script at the moment that we can actually date. I think as well, or the Rig Veda
3: I doubt it. No, um, I mean, no. as I said, you know, all these books are have been continually um, revised. Uh, mm. I, I'm not so sure whether the Rig Veda has, but but the Mahabharata, for instance, is continually um, it's been continually revised.
2: Mm. Yeah, as far as I understand about that, there was, um there there, there, there were many, there still are some other versions, because it was oral, and then it got co- consolidated as a one giant epic. Um, but yeah, so, but I'm, I'm beginning to understand, so it's astronomical data, what that is, is, so when the Rig Veda's, in the Rig Veda's, when they write about certain stars having certain positions, those now computer models, modern computer models, can then look That's at those right. positions and then relate them to how long ago they must have. Uh, That's how long, long must have been. Ah, okay. So it's actually reasonably accurate because you can't, you can't. Um, yeah. You're you're looking at observations of these people from back then. Yeah, and those observations. Uh, Relating them to something like material, like like the, the movement of us relative to the stars. Okay. If you're
3: interested in this, you can take yeah. where, where I get these bits of information from, it, it's all recorded in the, in the in the footnotes. And okay. if you're interested in delving down into that, you can you can get those books and, and then and then find out where he got those information from. I mean, you know,
2: yeah, yeah. Keep on going to the original. Okay. Amazing. Well, now, now, now you have it. Yeah, you, you have to. You have to buy the book, <laughs> and uh, and and then and then delve down into the footnotes. If you want the footnotes, you have to buy the book. Um, I think I think the book is going to have everything we spoke about and more. And uh, where, mm. where where can people find it? On Amazon.
3: Yes, it's on Amazon. Um, and so uh, the publisher is Pen and Sword. Pen and Sword. Um, okay. And um, I haven't been into London lately, so I don't know which bookshops are stocking it but um but i know that one of my friends uh, got uh, his bookshop to order it for him okay so, um so yeah that's a way to do it i, I lent very, it
0: to a fun. friend i'm afraid dad so I haven't, i've been very good at telling people to go out and buy it but my copy <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: I, i've tried it at least anyway <laughs> But I could only lend it to one person at a time. So, yeah, I recommend exactly. buy it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's the way nobody
2: works. <laughs> well, the
0: maritime trade in the Indian subcontinent shaped the ice
3: age to mid-8th century.
2: Okay. That is absolutely fascinating. Well, I can say that I personally have had my mind blown today with uh, with just an amazing new perspective on and, and information and evidence of of uh, ancient history what the world used to be like um in the times of the greeks because that's still our reference I, I hope one day we can say the times of of the uh, great indus civil or Sarasvati civilization that can be our central reference point at some point um so so yeah and i'm certainly going to buy this book i, I call in... it the indus,
1: uh,
3: it, it, western historians call it the indus civilization mm. um indian historians are beginning to call it the Saravasti Sindhu civilization. Okay. I I've called it the Indus Saravasti because in 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 you know there's, there's got to be a link But for some people that that understand that have read about the Indus civilization mm. and it's just a, a, a link. So it's a bit of a conceit, I suppose.
2: Do you know what? Well, since you mentioned it, what are Indian historians doing? Because we've been speaking about all of this development of knowledge and stuff and, and dates and everything be happening in western countries like germany and this. What, what, what are what's what's the input of indian historians um these days uh, and, and where are they sitting because i think until recently too they were very much in alignment with you know the Aryan invasion of india and all these um, ideas that we were yeah. discussing today yeah
3: yeah um, but I think most Indian historians now have, have been that. Um, mm. roler has has uh, got a, um, a a book out, um I think it's twenty years old now, but, but she um she rubbishes that um uh, quite rightly. Um and Western historians have been a bit bit um bit slower. but um mm. yeah know, I mean, the, the academic world moves quite slowly and is quite reluctant sometimes to mm. embrace new ideas. And then others that have, that have been taught the Aryan invasion years ago but have gone got on to some other speciality mention it in passing innocently. So it takes mm. a long while for these things to start, you know finally disappear.
0: It's part of the problem, isn't it? Because so many in history, especially people, they build their careers around... specialists on certain topics and they don't like to have something uh, come along and completely uh, basically tell them well yeah this is wrong
3: also indian historians don't talk to middle eastern historians and middle east historians think that the Um, middle east is the origin of everything egyptian historians think egypt (laughs) is is the the center of everything so um Mm.
2: You've got all these judges, yeah. It makes sense. <laughs> That's <does> definitely <laughs> make sense. Do um, you know? I have, I have another bubbling question. This I don't know why this has all come out right now, but so something else I mentioned uh, before to Mike, I think, in another podcast was was the way that the, the Greeks seem to you know, um, in terms of religion. So the Greek religion involved burning people or uh, burning people, the 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 deceased on a funeral pyres. Um, and same happens in Hinduism. There are certain deities which seem to have a lot of synergy, and since the languages have synergy too, again, um, the original idea about that was that there was a proto-civilization somewhere which spread. But if India influenced, if it did happen that way, that India influenced, um, was the source that influenced, uh, it, would, would that have included religion too for the Greeks? Um, yeah. Absolutely. And the gods of the Greeks, so Zeus, has its origin is, in India rather than the other way around.
1: Yeah, yeah
3: it is. Um, and, and this is not a modern idea. This When the Brits got to India, as I mentioned, um, um, before the Evangelicals uh, started uh, uh, their kind of tunnel vision view of, of India, um, the Brits were very open about it. And um, um, in the um, 1790s, the Asiatic society, um, Sir <clears throat> so William Jones, um, mm-hmm. um, uh, got the link between Celtic languages, Greek uh, and, and uh, Sanskrit. Mm-hmm. And he, he understood it. And he also understood uh, that uh, the Greek gods had basically copies of the Indian gods. So yes, and, and that's not controversial, that's not a new idea
2: interesting, because that, that really does imply that there was a huge movement of ideas from before, kind of, well, and, in, in and every do, single phase, you, right? <laughs> and you, <laughs> you do know.
0: see the similarities of the names, which is something that Chetan was a bit uh, skeptical about before, mm. maybe still so, or less so now.
2: It it depends. Like if it's like, for example, we spoke about um, the Egyptians, Ra. Ra, and, and it seems like there's very Hill little Ra. influence there there was more influence over the Greeks, and and it was, yeah. <clears throat> and and so yeah, still, still I think, all, all, all my sceptical opinion. <laughs> the, the, the,
3: I think the father of the gods in
2: in India was a
3: Dios, which became yeah. um, which became a Dieu in French and uh, and,
2: this. and, this. and, this. Um, and mm-hmm. so yeah yeah that was the origin and then, and then things began to uh, yeah develop right because as you say everything's developed one on top of the other in Indian um, uh, literature and philosophy. And so that I don't know. I've, I, I know about that, but I've never, when I was growing up seen it in, in, in the new Hindu pantheon <laughs> um, that that particular one. but definitely um, it exists in the Rig Veda. You know Mm. it's it's mentioned there and then and then yeah as time goes on things have things have become i don't know this is a whole chat about hinduism starting i guess but there's there's evolution monotheistic ideas and various i mean hinduism is monotheistic pantheistic so many ways you could you could frame it um There's
3: there's christianity you've got god You've got yeah. Jesus. You've got the Virgin Mary. It's true. The apostles. You, you, same thing.
2: <laughs> yeah, this is very. <laughs> very
3: human. And, and the Virgin Mary, Madonna, that comes from Matana. our, okay. our mother,
2: our mother. Yeah. Republic. Yeah. Uh, hmm. I, I, do you know what? I I feel like there's a whole series of podcasts coming up between us three. Um, <laughs> <laughs> We've go only on.
0: got five minutes left, though.
2: Yeah, we've only got five minutes before that technical error <laughs> ruins everything again. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll wrap it up and we'll do it again sometime. Yeah, definitely. I, th- I think there's conversations about travel in Japan, um, immersive travel over there, and and conversations clearly are around religion and philosophy now too. Um, mm. Because we, we
0: didn't touch upon that at all, did we?
2: No, I think that... No, no. And I think that, that would be an amazing... Um, amazing conversation, to be honest, mm-hmm. and, and puts a lot of perspective over, you know, the origin of some of our big ideas, um, and where they come from, and why maybe uh, we have those ideas. You know, so, yeah, let's just let's let's do it. Let's 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 reconvene. Uh, well, thank you very much shortly. for inviting us. Bro. No, certainly it's been an absolute pleasure. Um yeah, it's what a way okay. to catch up after a few <laughs> years. <laughs>
3: <laughs> and when you're in London, call me and we'll have a beer or three.
2: Definitely, definitely. We'll, we'll do that. We'll do that, maybe maybe four. <laughs> if if you live in the countryside. <laughs>
0: um, okay. Can I can I also have a beer with you as well I'm dead. Um Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes. 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 All right. I think marks a good place to wrap it up. Wrap it up. Yeah. Okay. So thank you everyone for listening and see you in the next one.
3: Thanks. Bye.
2: Ciao, ciao.